Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Matthew, book of Matthew, first chapter. If you can get to Matthew, then it's pretty easy from there. We'll be in the first 17 verses. This morning, we're beginning today a four-part Christmas series, you could call it. Sometimes we just keep trucking through our series. Uh, Sometimes we take a bit of a detour, and it's nice to do that from time to time. Um, This year, this Christmas season will be in Matthew chapters 1 through 2. This is an origin story of Jesus Christ. And this morning we start with the origin story behind his, his birth. My mom is here today. Hi, mom. Okay. I get to do that. Your daughter is here. That's very good. It's December. No, a word of public word of honor is, is, is worth it. Mom, thank you for having me. Thank you for raising me. No one has put up with me more than my mother. Don't ask her, please, for any stories. No, I'm grateful for my, my mother and my father as we, we all should be. I'm pouring my life out into my own children, and um, it is in these years you realize just how much you have been poured into I'm sure the church only wishes she taught me to tell better jokes, though. It's just a little bit, a little bit could have been improved, I'm sure. Well, friend, you're here at church this morning, but is there something keeping you from Jesus? Something keeping you from coming to Him? Maybe something that you've done? Well, there's plenty that we've done. Maybe something that's happened to you. Maybe some great and profound sorrow and you've given up on the thought that anyone can rescue you from that grief, that hardship. You're here this morning, but is there something keeping you from Jesus? Well, I hope and pray that this morning's text helps you come to him. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab. And Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, 
and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, and Abihud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Elihud, and Elihud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, maybe Matthew didn't have a better idea for how to begin his account of the good news of Jesus. Maybe this is a tax collector thing. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector. And I'm sure those guys were good at the lists, you know, and and lists of names and who owed what and gave what. And there's usually a little bit of shenanigans in the list making. Who was going to get asked for more and, and, and how much and for what reason? Matthew would have been good at lists. But I wonder if he wouldn't have benefited from consulting with Mark. Mark, a man of action, cuts right to the chase. A dramatic quote from the Old Testament. He mashes two together for dramatic effect. And then he's right into the action Jesus sent into the wilderness. He had his reasons for doing that. I wonder if he couldn't have consulted Luke. Luke starts off in first person speaking of his expertise. He was a doctor and he took a careful account of anything, everything that he could gather and, 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 uh, and created this account of the good news of Jesus. Um, eyewitnesses were involved and he mentions that and that creates some real intrigue right off the bat, no doubt. Um, John begins his gospel in the stratosphere. It's past that. It's the stratosphere of the stratosphere in eternity past. The word was God and the word was with God in the beginning. Jesus, this incredible claim on the, the pen of the author, John, that this man crucified by Rome, whom we've claimed has been raised from the dead and at work by his spirit now, was actually from all eternity, is himself God. Uh, what a profound claim, a, a hook for sure. This is not so much a hook on first read, at least. So why a list of names? It's a list, that's one thing. A list of names and a very long list. Matthew did not get the memo that he needs to include some application in his uh, sermon material. Uh, I'd appreciated that. Um, I think of it a little bit like the, the pile. Uh, uh, um, you know, we have company, so we cut up apples. We only do that when we have company. And there were four or five of these little apple slices in front of my daughter, Nora, and they were all like eaten out. It's amazing. She's got the skill to just drill through all the actual apple and leave, leave the peel. Well, is it like bread crust? You know, you kind of have to get through it, but you can, you can go ahead and skip it, actually. Is this kind of like the bread crust? Or sorry, most of you, the pie crust? Hate pie crust? Not everyone's pie crust, I guess. The stuff from the store is the worst. It's real dry. Mom's pie crust, ah, oh, it's good, I'm sure. It's been a long time. 
Is it like that? Is this like the edge? Well, why is this so difficult for us? Difficult to read? Difficult to preach? Well, the sheer density of it is just worth acknowledging. You know, some of us are better at loading the dishwasher, and I get sort of told how to do it sometimes, and it's personal. You know, I have a way. But it is impressive when you can get it all in there. Um, It's kind of like that. But we don't want just to admire it, like, look at how we got it all in there. We, we want to understand it. We want to feel it even. We, we want, you, can't, you can't use all the dishes when they're, when they're crammed in there. And it's kind of hard to use all this when it's crammed in there, it seems. Sheer density of it. Uh, the cultural distance. So the names, I may have gotten a few of these wrong. We have several Hebrew scholars. Typically, I'll, in the room, typically, I'll, I'll listen to Max. McLean, read the New Testament when I have a hard passage coming up. I forgot to do it for this one. Um, But as it is, sometimes he reads the names differently from verse to verse, which is very frustrating for me, an average preacher. So then I have to guess. Cultural distance, you know, the difficulty with the names just indicates a a distance of many thousands of, of years. Of course, they're not so different from you and I, but you know what I mean. A great cultural distance here. And then there's just some genuine difficulties, like the whole 14 thing at verse 17. Uh, he makes a real big point here to say 14 generations, Abraham to David, and from David to the deportation, and then from the deportation to the Christ. 14, 14, 14 generate generations. And it looks like sheer manipulation, because if you get on the ground of the history here, left all kinds of people out. Um, the span of years wouldn't make any sense given as many generations are listed almost for any of these sections. Um, Some names are taken out. Some names are included to get to 14 that aren't necessary here. There's some weird counting, like you can get to 14 with each list, but if you count a little differently, like do you include David in this one or not? He's twice. There's a few of those little little puzzles and you could spin your tires right, right there forever. I'm calling it a genuine difficulty for the moment. A little bit of a help here is that father of, father of, father of does not have to indicate a direct lineage. So remember, Adam named his wife Eve, the mother of all living. Okay, so Eve is the mother of all living, not just the few kids she'd have, but like all the kids from her. And, and so it can be understood this way. It doesn't totally solve the problem though because he's counting. He needed these numbers apparently, 14. Um, maybe his kid was turning 14 and it was a wink. I don't know. Actually, I do know. We'll get to that. But we can only ponder here at, at the head. Uh, it, it seems like a manipulation of the history to get, for some reason, to this, this number 14. Well, there's some general encouragements we can take from the fact of a genealogy that I'll offer just at the beginning here. So, not specific to this genealogy. I just bought a book um, called All the Genealogies of the Bible. You can buy it if you want. Um, it's about that thick. And it's about that big. It's one of those. 
They didn't want to make it that thick, so they made it bigger like this. All the genealogies of the Bible, and I should have counted them for you ahead of this Sunday. A whole lot of genealogies. A whole lot of genealogies in the Bible. So general encouragements are, in the first place, our Bible represents real history. It was not dropped down to us letter by letter, word by word, in a strict dictation fashion from God or an angel through a man with a prism on his eyes. It was not dictated in that fashion, although this is the inspired word of God, every word written, what the Spirit intended, as, as if wind blowing a ship moved human authors to write what they did. But human authors, human, real human authors in real time with real differences of grammar and personality and perspective, all inspired by the Spirit over thousands of years. That's an encouragement. This is a real book regarding real history, theological history as it's given to us. It means that more than that the Bible is real history, but the, the God of the Bible is at work for real in history. He really is at work in history. And so he is at work today in this church and in your life. And as he is at work in real history, and at work today, so he is at work in and through, and in spite of, and for the sake of, real people. Not so different from you and me. So we get all that from these 17 verses and a list of names. But those are general encouragements. What we have here is the lineage of a king. That's the title of the sermon, lineage of the king, or the king's line. We don't make too much of lineage personally, not like folks in other cultures or your own heritage in years past. On the one hand, we might, we might overlook it in favor of things like achievements or degrees or personal style, and we tend to identify more with our vocation and these kinds of things, less than we do a family, a family line. Or we might cheapen the idea of a family line by trading it out for uh, superficial identity markers like um, color uh, so you know what group you belong to, so then you know whether you're good or bad or on this side or the other side of a particular issue. It sure is a, a silly, <laughs> cheap way to organize people and and come to know who you, who you are, uh, humanly speaking. Sometimes um, we, we make something of our, our line for factoids. So, you know, you, you, you get advertised to you, um, is it Ancestry.com? And uh, it's a big deal. And it's really helpful to know where you came from. You find out all kinds of things. I should sign up for it. I have an uncle who did, who's learned all kinds of things for us. Uh, on my dad's side, we come from a long line of of morticians. Some 150 years ago, um, Will, you think that's funny, but I've always known that, so maybe it is funny. But uh, my, my great-great-grandpa moves to Gagetown, Michigan, and he got that training, and, that, and he provided that service for, for that community. And my dad's dad was a mortician. Dad grew up in that kind of, of a home. It's an interesting uh, background. And I like to say, we've always worked with the dead. 
Um, he buried them and I raised them, okay? So, now in my uncle's garage and my parents' house, there's a, a metal, little metal, um, not, not plaque, excuse me, a little metal, piece of metal, how about that? That, you, that says uh, C.P. Hunter, and it went alongside the, it went onto the side of the horse-drawn hearse. It's pretty cool. Morticians on my dad's side, northern Michigan, hunters. We have a castle somewhere over in Scotland. I started Googling that this week. I have to go visit my castle at some point. <laughs> Show my kids our castle. It exists. And I married Christy. She's also got Scottish roots, and she's a Robinson, so I'm not sure how we did, but we're doing fine today. Well, on my mom's side, um, we've got Irish roots, We've actually also got a direct line to the Hatfields, Hatfields and McCoys. I think that's kind of neat. Um, we're Pennsylvania Dutch. We don't quite know how we got it. Uh, my great-great-great-grandpa, I think, uh, ran away from home. Um, a very troubled home and difficulty in that home and ran away and escaped to Michigan. And they're set up family. And so now you've got the Hunters. And we had William... Uh, Martin married Josephine, and they had Fred, who had Ken, Penny, Janelle, right there, and Marty. And you can learn about what people did, and I'm calling it factoids, but like interesting things about your history. But once you get into it, you actually start to see, oh, that's why I always say, I got this cheap over here, but it really costs this much. And I sold this over here, and that's Pennsylvania Dutch, you see. So when I go up to Michigan, they're all doing that. Oh, I got this jacket for this much, and, and then these slacks, and then that table, and you'd not believe what I got for the fridge. They're buying and selling and stuff and making deals and, and all of that. And it occurs to me, y'all don't do that. Um, but I grew up with it. So you end up finding out a little bit about your lineage. lineage. There's more to it, ought to be more to it than we, we make of it, but we know how to make a big deal of it when it comes to the legitimacy of of leaders. I mean, I was in college when the Bush-Gore election had happened, and election integrity is important. We should all agree on that so that we can trust elections. The whole hanging Chad thing 25 years ago, what constitutes a vote? Uh, um, it matters. You know, we, ha- we, we appoint a president for four years with limited responsibility, authority, and for a limited period of time, how much more important would the legitimacy of that individual to that office be if we had, say, a king? Indefinite reign, uh, far-reaching authority. Jesus makes a claim to be king of the universe. The king long promised in our Old Testament scriptures. It's a massive, massive claim. Early first century Christians claimed that Jesus was heaven's king, come, raised, and seated on David's throne. A really, really big claim. And so this matter of legitimacy is very important. And if that's your claim, and if your neck's on the line for that, and if you've given up all for the sake of that king and his claim, then, well, a little trip down Ancestry.com for the lineage of that king. That's not the crust. This is the hook. This has us. 
Here we have the king's lineage. We'll take the rest of our time in two parts. His royal background and our only way back. First, his royal background. We'll divide this section into two parts. A clear line establishing Jesus as the rightful heir of David's throne. And a crooked line that reveals the kind of people that he makes his own. A clear line establishing Jesus as the rightful heir to David's throne. This genealogy here does provide a clear line to Jesus. Um, The genealogy is not merely the information that is necessary to establish Jesus' legal, rightful authority as the heir to David's throne. It does more than that. And genealogies in the ancient world would do more than establish mere legal lineage. I like to think of this genealogy, think of like a family tree, and then, you know, the tree has a shape. But imagine you could kind of snip here and pull this out over here, and you could, make, you could shape the tree. For those of you who shape plants, you could shape the tree. Well, this tree, bear with me as I press the metaphor, is in the shape of King David. It is carefully shaped in a royal fashion. First verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You say, yes, well, he says David and Abraham. He mentions others. He mentions David and Abraham at the head. Look what he does in verse two. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Okay, so he gets into his list and he starts with Abraham. But in verse one, he, he foregrounds David. Genealogy of Jesus Christ, the first thing you need to know about him, he's the son of David. Okay, look at the, the very end here, verse 17. All the generations of Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David, the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from that deportation, which constituted the fall of David's line, uh, to the Christ, 14 generations. That whole bit about 14. Don't do this with all the numbers in the Bible. This is why I've got helps myself. That's why you've got teachers. 14's not unrelated here. Highly likely to stand in for the name David. So in the ancient world, characters would also have uh, numbers assigned to them so that you could take your name and add up the numbers and there's a number. You always knew what your number was. Um, Here, guess what number is David? 14. So the entire shape of the history as Matthew is telling it is Davidic. In other words, he's, he's just shaped, he shaped the tree in such a way that it, it even spells David, even as it offers a legal lineage to David. Hope you're following me. Hope you're following me there. So it's Davidic in shape. And then each pivot, as I indicated in the reading, uh, verse 6, the father and David the king. He, he, acts, he offers the king there. And then, and David was the father of Solomon. And we continue. There's another break at the deportation of Babylon. Again, that's the end of the line for David's house for a time. And then after the deportation to Babylon, and he picks up the list from there. The whole list is shaped and royal terms. And there's three movements through the list. Let's just work through those 
uh, briefly. We're not going to get into all the history. You're welcome, but I will give you a bit of a tour of the, the main, the main uh, items here that he's holding out in the way that he's constructed. Certainly Abraham heads this list when he gets into the history. In verse 2, Abraham, the father of Isaac, and Isaac of Jacob, and Jacob of Judah, and his brothers. He doesn't mention the rest of the brothers. He mentions in his brothers because it's from Jacob and all of his sons will be the 12 tribes, but it's from Judah that the scepter will never depart. It's from Judah that the kings will come. It's from Judah that a king will come. It's from Judah that the Messiah will come. That's plain enough from the book of Genesis. So he follows the line from Abraham down to Jacob. Now Judah, of course, his brothers. The Messiah comes from Israel, the people of God, but specifically from the line of Judah. Judah is mentioned there. It's royal in its connotation. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, twins by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. And he goes on. Now, the significance of Abraham, remember, we had Noah's flood. We heard about this a week or so ago. And after Noah's flood, Noah steps off on land, most righteous man on the earth, and we are back to where we started. God judged the whole earth, but humanity still has Adam's problem, and Noah sins, and his children sin, and the world is today filled with violence. We're grateful, not as much as it could be, but oh, depending on where you stand, the world is filled with violence, and the thoughts of men's hearts are evil. Thank God for his restraining grace. But sin remains with us, and it remained. What did God do? He came with a promise to a man named Abraham who was not even looking for him. God came in grace to a man named Abraham, an idol worshiper, an Ur. And he made a promise to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. So this is a new restart. But it's better than the restart he did with Noah. I will make you a great nation a people will come, and I will bless you, a blessing in a cursed world, and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So blessing in a cursed world will come through Abraham, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, I will make you into nations, plural, and kings shall come from you. And by the end of the book of Genesis, We've watched his line, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Through his offspring, Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So that's Abraham. Abraham, what, what a... What a marvelous story. What grace. If God had not come in grace to Abraham, there would be no hope for humanity. There is only hope for any of us in this room for a right relationship with God and new life and a new creation one day because God showed up and made a promise to Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And of course, that son took a long time to come. A reminder that even in this long genealogy are represented many years and many patient, faith-filled 
saints. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Well, next we have David. Let's skip ahead. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And of course, David is this one in whom all of God's promises will be channeled. Abraham is, receives the promises and he has 12 sons. Jacob, excuse me, not all of his sons are included. Jacob has 12 sons. And that constitutes then the nation Uh, Israel delivered out of Egypt, God covenants with the people of Israel at Sinai through Moses, and we have a nation. And it is through that nation that God is going to bring about a new humanity. The Messiah will come through that nation. And when David comes, and God anoints David, and God comes to David with a promise, we learn that all of God's promises given to Abraham and to the people from his line will be focused in the man and the king who is David. So what we just said about Abraham, we can say about David. There is nothing of any spiritual good that happens for and in and through any of us. There is no becoming right with God apart from God's promises to Abraham through the man, David. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be a prince over my people. And I will make your name great, and like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. An initial shadowy installment in Solomon and then a future fulfillment in Jesus, the Davidic king. And the psalmists speak of this. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Kiss the son and blessed are all who take refuge in him. His kingdom is from shore to shore, which is to say, The the kingdom of this son of David will cover the whole earth, everything in creation. It'll be for forever. It'll go on forever. It'll be universal and that it will include all peoples. And it will be righteous and characterized by great mercy for his people. And all those who kiss the son, who come to this son of David and find refuge in him will be blessed. We move from Abraham, we move to David, then we have the deportation to Babylon. And this is a great, great tragedy. For following Solomon and other kings, there were great, great departures from faithfulness to the Lord, entrances into sin and idolatry, and the people simply did not believe what God had said, that those who obey will be blessed, and if you disobey my voice, you'll be cursed. And just as Adam was deported from the garden, so God established the land and his people would be welcomed into the land and it was a kind of a reset, but as humanity in Noah's day rebelled, so humanity, this new humanity-ish, Israel disobeyed, worshipped other gods, and just as God said, and so it grieved him, but they were banished and deported from the land. And what heartache that must have been. What grief that must have been. 
Many killed, many slaughtered, many led away, many enslaved. Great at tremendous hardships are represented by those words right there. And there's a return to the land, but it's nothing like what it was. There were memories of the temple one day, long ago. Stories their fathers told. People couldn't even sing. Those years were characterized by lament. Returning to the land, but it is though God was not with them. And so he was silent for many years. We have a movement from Abraham with great hope for humanity in God's gracious promises. And then in David, where God's promises are focused and clarified for this incredible king to come, a Messiah, a son of David, to sit on an eternal throne. But then eviction from the land to Babylon. Where is God? And when will things be set right? And how will that ever happen? And of course, the readers of this first this account of Matthew's believed that it had come in Jesus and it would be of great encouragement to have the reassurance that yes, indeed it come, it came in Jesus. And he's the rightful heir for verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. And in this genealogy, Jesus is a son of David by adoption, a legal heir through Joseph and the physical son of Mary, son of the woman. It is a beautiful and a brilliant tale, and there is more to share. What we have here is a clear line establishing Jesus as the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. But it's a clear line that is not so straight. For as we take another pass to highlight several other names, we see that we have as well a crooked line that reveals the kind of people that this king makes his own. He has been selective, and he has a purpose in the names that he has selected and even added, perhaps sometimes unnecessarily. Women are included here. That is unexpected. They are not expected to be on lists like this that are typically dominated by men, although it's not entirely unconventional to find them on such lists. But then the women that we do find on this list are not the women that we would expect. You see that Abraham, the father of Isaac, well, just think of the long time that Sarah waited and you'd think Sarah would get mentioned here, a matriarch or Rachel or Rebecca or Leah or others. No, instead we get Tamar and we get Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. These are the ones that he has selected. Uh, verse 3, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Okay. Or verse 5, Boaz by Rahab, and Obed, verse 5, by Ruth. And verse 6, Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Uh, the, the, the by the mom, that's not included all these other places. And these four ladies have a little something in in common. These are the ones he selected. Tamar, twice widowed. We believe she had faith to understand how God's promise would move through Judah's line. Judah refused to allow her to marry his third son. Leveret marriage would have allowed for that. That was her hope for a, a child and 
and the nation's hope for, family's hope for the line. And so, knowing her father's sins, she dresses up as a prostitute, veils herself, entices her father-in-law, sleeps with her father-in-law, and has a child by incest. Now, he commends her as more righteous than he, for it was not just prostituting herself around that was going on in her heart. Nevertheless, this is a questionable story, is it not? Not the first I would have chosen to put in the list of the great king. And then you have Rahab, straight up a prostitute, a Canaanite prostitute, behind the walls at Jericho. Now she had great faith. She believed in the God of Israel. She heard the reports. And while the rest of uh, the, the people behind the walls of Jericho cowered in fear and then fought Israel, she hid the spies, provided cover by faith. And she was united to the people of Israel and so far as we know, gave up her lifestyle. Uh, but, you know, a questionable addition. You know, not above reproach there. Uh, Ruth, the whole threshing floor scene. And there's not so much that we could hold her uh, in trouble for, but she's a Moabitess. And that whole people is off limits. For they were born in incest. So that Ruth is just a questionable character by way of lineage, if for any other, any other reason. And then Bathsheba, her name's not even listed here, by the wife of Uriah, and that's kind of the point. She did not belong to, to David, she belonged to Uriah, and she was taken for an adulterous relationship. And with each of these ladies, the story is not exactly the same, and there were other sinning partners for sure, and the narratives give the details that we need. The point is, is as we zoom out, these are not the ladies that we would expect to be in this list you're going to include the women. But he selected them for a specific purpose. And what is that purpose? Why has he shaped this family tree in just this way, leaving these off, but then adding these names of these ladies? Well, I think it is to show that Jesus is a king for all kinds of people. One thing these ladies have in common is that they are all Gentiles. Even uh, Bathsheba would not have been a Gentile by birth, but the wife of Uriah, Uriah was a Hittite. Even mentioning the wife of Uriah not only accents the fact that she was taken for adultery, but that she was married into a Gentile family and so considered a Gentile, though integrated into the people. So here we have, for any Jewish reader... Who is, who is seeing God's purposes as narrowly for those born of or these, these tribes in Israel, he is highlighting through Israel's history the fact that God all along has been integrating men and women from Gentile nations into his people. A taste of what's to come for how does the book of Matthew end? but with a charge, a commission for his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations. Here at the very beginning, Matthew has planted that seed of a theme that he builds to the end of his book. But more than just including all kinds of people, and that's good for you and me, for I'm a Scot and an Irishman. I'm not Jewish by birth. But he includes all kinds of sinners, and I don't need to say any more. 
this genealogy, this kingly lineage, this royal line is peppered with all kinds of sinners. And he has grabbed some of the bad cases in Israel's story. Now, these ladies came to faith and they were counted among the faithful. But that's what God does, isn't it? And hasn't he done that with you and me? And if he hasn't, he can do that with you. He can. That's why we're here today. We're not here today because Jesus came for the righteous. (laughs) Jesus came for sinners. He's a physician that came for the sick. So you and I show up sick. And if we're well to any extent, it's his grace. No, he came for all kinds of people. Jesus is a king for all kinds of people. And he's a king for all kinds of sinners. And if he came from people like these, did he not come for people just like these? So don't imagine for a minute that God can't receive you whatever it is you've told no one. Whatever it is that goes on in your head. Whatever it is that you've done in your past. Don't tell yourself that God cannot, would not, will not receive you if you come to him. For he will. First page of Matthew's gospel puts that to bed. If he came from people like these, surely he came for people like these. And of course he did come. For tax collectors and sinners would be his company. He is the kind of king these sinners need. He is the kind of king these sinners need. He is the kind of king this sinner needs. And thankfully, we are the kind of sinners that this king is pleased to save. Well, his background as king, his royal background, means he is our only way back. It is very good news that we have a king, just as I have described, just as Matthew has indicated in his subtle ways through a genealogy of all things. But not only is this for us an indication of Jesus' royal background, but it is an invitation to our only way back. Back to verse 17 here with all the 14s. Remember those? So what is that all about? Matthew and his readers knew full well that he left names off. So maybe if this has been a point of struggle for you, and it may be that one thing that keeps you coming but keeps you from coming to Jesus is little puzzles in the Bible like this. You've heard too many of them. Well, I'm happy to show this one to you. Uh, He counts 14 three times, and the math is a little weird. And the history of it, the math is a little weird even on the page. But 14 stands in for David, so that makes sense. Except, like I said, the funny, the funny counting. What is the, what is the point of, of putting this here if he intends to drive a point home? And I think he does. The point is simply... <laughs> That in this tidy list, this beautifully framed portrait, within this beautiful frame, we have all of these 
family members. And isn't that the gospel for us? Isn't that the cross and the resurrection? But a beautiful frame for all of us. And we don't go in the frame uh, because we're as beautiful and as righteous as Jesus, but because he put us in the frame. And here what we have for this patchwork history, we have a perfect picture. How is this not this? How is he not doing this? Imagine you're a Jewish young lady like Mary in a generation that has largely left her Lord and yet she waits and she longs and she reads the scriptures as, as some others were in that day. And Jesus comes and quite a story it is, but he's crucified. You didn't see that coming, but then he's raised from the dead and it all makes sense now and you believe. But now he's gone and, and it costs everything to follow him. And Matthew, the tax collector whom he saves, has delivered you this book, this story of Jesus Christ, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And he begins with this story and he ends by tying it up in that beautiful little bow in verse 17. And how does that not say to you that God's been in it the whole time? No, through this patchwork history and through your patchwork history, God is putting together a perfect story, weaving together his perfect plan. And he is doing throw, so, excuse me, through unexpected characters. Has he not? Has he not? People that we would not have chosen ourselves to be in the story. And he is doing so through embarrassing circumstances, circumstances we would have never chosen for ourselves, be they on the page or in your own life. And through heartbreaking losses that we would wish on no one, many of them self-inflicted. For the generation that was deported to Babylon... They wept when they came back. They wept on their way out. They did not believe that their rebellion would meet God's judgment. But oh, just like he said, it came. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they saw it. It was delight to the eyes. And who knows what Adam was thinking. But he wanted the place of God. And didn't think God would keep his word that he would die. But surely every sin and Trouble from the curse that followed is because he was wrong about that. And this generation was wrong about their sin. Don't be wrong. God's judgment will surely come upon you if you do not kiss the sun. If you do not flee to Jesus for refuge. But if you flee to him for refuge, this son of David will not crush you, but he will welcome you. He will welcome you as surely as there are names for every kind of person and every kind of sinner in his own genealogy. There on purpose, I presume, God put them there so that you might even connect with some of them. Now, our God is working a strange and unexpected kind of salvation through unexpected characters and embarrassing circumstances and heartbreaking losses that we would wish on no one. 
And this story goes back to Abraham, but it actually goes back a little further. For the purposes of establishing the Davidic theme and the royal theme, he goes back to Abraham for it was promised that kings would come from Abraham. So he goes back far enough, but Abraham's story doesn't start there. And even in Matthew's first line, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you could otherwise translate it the genesis of Jesus Christ. That little line right there would call to mind the very first line of the Old Testament. The first line of the new echoes the first line of the old. And so what Matthew has on offer to you and to me here, to anyone who will come and kiss the son and take refuge in him, is a new beginning, a new creation. And this here is the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew is preparing to take us into the story of his birth, which we will see in the weeks ahead. And the question I simply offer you for now, here at the end of this long list of names, is where your name is this morning. On the one hand, we don't put our name down. And yet... There is an invitation here to come to Jesus. And if you will come to Jesus, yes, you will find your name there. Find your name in Jesus' record book. There are many other names that weren't included here. And your name is not written here. But in this list of names, in this lineage, which I hope is more interesting to you, than just factoids about Jesus' background, but your very life, matters of very life and death. In this list with which Matthew begins his gospel account is an invitation to us all to come and make sure our name is in the Lamb's book of life. So come to him. And remember, there shouldn't be anything keeping you away from him, really. No sorrow is too great. No sin is too great. Matthew himself, our author of the first book of our New Testament, was a tax collector writing for sinners. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this long genealogy and we thank you for what it teaches us on some reflection that the Lord Jesus came for sinners like us and for people of all kinds and so we thank you that as Abraham believed and it was credited as righteousness so we believe and it is credited as righteousness we do not come to you this morning as those who are righteous, but as those who are counted righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. And we thank you that Noah's story is not the end of the story. We thank you that Abraham's story was not the end of the story, that the deportation to Babylon was not the end of the story. But we thank you that you have worked all of these good and not quite good enough and sometimes downright terrible and sorrow-filled stories for your good purposes. And would you work all of our stories for the same. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.